This is Twist. This Week in Science, episode number 902, recorded on Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. Who's thankful for science? I think everyone here right now. I'm Dr. Kiki, and tonight on the show, we will fill your heads with duplications, Europeans, no, Europeans, and frogs. But first, thanks to our amazing Patreon sponsors for their generous support of Twists. You can become a part of the Patreon community at patreon.com slash thisweekinscience. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. No new action on curbing emissions. That's the result of the COP27 meeting. Nothing, zero, zilch. All the speeches, all the media hype, all the past commitments amounted to nothing. There were no agreements to reduce carbon. No agreements to phase out coal and oil industry subsidies. No agreements on rethinking agricultural practices. No agreements to meet past commitments on afforestation. No agreements on industry aerosol reduction. No agreements to fund research solutions to scale alternative energy or to face the increasing environmental degradation heading our way. If anything, it was a total surrender to another generation of complete reliance on fossil fuels. The 27th Conference of the Party's Convention on Climate Change was a massive public failure of leadership and political resolve, one that deeply discredited the urgency with which governments of the world claim to be taking the issue And it was perhaps the most productive meeting we could have asked for. It provided a clear roadmap of dead ends, of non-starters. Notably, the United Nations will not be leading us to a solution. It offered confessions of culpability in the way of loss and damages, payments to nations most affected by global warming, though done so with no clear outline of how those funds will be distributed, who will pay, or when. And it solidified the belief among many that the political power industry is greater than the collective will of a majority of global citizens who want action. So what is next? Science! It has the solutions. Without funding and legislation, those solutions are not likely to be realized. But if we keep working on them, increasing the feasibility and diversity of those solutions, eventually the world will have no other option than complete and total reliance on This Week in Science! up next. I've got the kind of mind that can't get enough. I want to learn everything. I want to fill it all up with new discoveries that happen every day of the week. There's only one place to go to find the knowledge I seek. I want to know what's happening. What's happening. What's happening. This week in science. What's happening. What's happening. What's happening. This week in science. Good science to you, Kiki and Blair. Good science to you too, Justin, Blair, and everyone out there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Science. We are back again to talk about science on this pre-Thanksgiving day, day of giving thanks. Also, that we'd like to say thanks to the indigenous peoples of the United States for all they have done and all the knowledge they can bring and 
all the land that we have put our homes upon and the reality that we are now standing in a place that was pre previously peopled by the indigenous peoples. But let's and talk is, about And this. is currently. And is currently. And is, well, no, not, not, not this spot. But and currently. This spot. And currently, but we, I mean, we did put in various places. And, yeah. Okay, anyway. All sorts of colonization so stuff. Occupied territory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little bit. That's 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 where I was going with that. But welcome, everyone. I am so glad that you are here. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on this day. I'm always grateful for you joining us for science. Let's talk about it. What do I have for this week? I have tons of science news about bat genes, fat birds and makeup. What do you have, Justin? I have got uh, a couple of stories to do with global warming. I've got some just good news, mass extinction edition. And if I make it to the end of the show with, uh, with the internet, uh, a, a use of wastewater that we haven't thought of oh. before, I guess. Fantastic. I mean, yeah. usually we just want to clean the wastewater, but a use for wastewater... Maybe that's mm -hmm. a positive direction. Blair, what is in the yes. animal corner? Oh, I have such good conversation topics for everyone celebrating Thanksgiving tomorrow. I can't wait for you to bring yes. this up around the yes. table. Um, yes. I have uh, fish mothers that eat their babies. I have uh, how exactly frogs swallow and uh, ch chimps showing off to their parents. <laughs> show. show off chimps. Nice themed show today. I think it's going to be fantastic. And I hope everyone's looking forward to all that we are bringing today. As we jump into the show, I want to remind you all that if you are not yet subscribed, you can find us all places podcasts are found. You can find us streaming live Wednesday evenings, 8 p.m. Pacific time on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch. We are normally this week in science, but we're also at Twist Science on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is twist.org. But now, let's jump in to that big old turkey we like to call science. Okay, no. Uh, anyway, there's going to be lots yeah, of... Yeah, what did you base your science in this week? <laughs> Thanksgiving jokes. Um, the first thing I want to stuff into your heads is <laughs> a little bit... Uh, it, it's, it's a little batty. Yes, we are going to talk about bat viruses. We've talked about bat viruses with respect to COVID and other diseases before, and the reality that we know that bats harbor lots of viruses. In fact, they are reservoirs for these viruses, where the viruses kind of do battle and mutate and figure out ways out, and then potentially because people and bats or the other parts of the ecosystem that bats interact with and humans interact, eventually those, the, those viruses potentially can jump to humans. So one of the big questions is, what is it about the bat immune system that allows them to harbor so many viruses and not get sick with them themselves? Because that's what happens. These bats, they get infected, but they don't get sick. So the question is, what's going on in their genes? And a study was just published this week in Science Advances called Adaptive Duplication and Genetic Diversification of Protein Kinase R contribute to the specificity of bat virus interactions. 
So what does this mean? Well, the researchers uh, dug into a bunch of bat genomes, and in doing so, they were able to determine that there is uh, this one particular family of genes, protein kinase R, and the protein kinase R gene, somewhere along the way, it got duplicated. And so bat genomes, and they looked at 33 species uh, of more than Oh, focusing on 33 of more than 130 different species of mouse-eared bats. This is from the genus Myotis. Um, they were able to determine that there was at least one duplication, but most species had more than two copies. Though so there were multiple duplications of this particular gene that is specifically called EIF2AK2. Um, they found also closely related sequences, so not only just duplications, but duplications and very slight alterations, but all still within this uh, group of genes that create these protein kinases, which are enzymes that are active in the immune system. And so the idea is that these enzymes then are part of beating up and battling and eating, eating up viruses. And the viruses and the bats well, have been doing battle for a very long time. Yes. What? Well, it's yeah. interesting because uh, um, kinase enzymes tend to add, be additive. Uh, they like usually look for stuff and they go, oh, hey, you're, you've got your phosphate hat. Here, put that right. on. Now you're good to go. Yeah, yeah, they're like kind of yeah. running around, finding people walking down the street, missing an accessory, and they fix them up and send them on their way again. So is it so? Yeah, I'm curious how this is working now. Is it is it finding uh, bits of the virus and going, oh no, you're dressed all wrong, and then you know putting it in some right. big mittens. You need it. You need a phosphate hat. Anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You you need that hat. You don't need that hat. Oh, you need that. You don't need that. Exactly. Changing around the. I mean, these protein kinases are doctor seussing the viruses up. Um, yeah. They are. Have, have been a very specific aspect of how these bats are battling viruses and don't get infected by them. Uh, they determined, they say in this abstract, that duplicated PKRs of the myotis species have undergone genetic diversification, allowing them to collectively escape from and enhance the control of DNA and RNA viruses. This suggests that viral-driven adaptations in PKR contribute to modern virus-bat interactions and may account for bat-specific immunity. And if, uh, and if this is indeed the case, this starts to give us a target to look at, um, and it starts to potentially tell us how we can target viruses, you know, where their weak spots are, what we can, what we can start going after. And if we understand how the bats evade the viruses, maybe it can help us evade the viruses as well. But it is very indicative of predator-prey interactions. The researchers said that going into these genomes, they really were able to see that these viruses and bats have been like the immune system of bats versus viruses have been like ratcheting up at each other for millennia. So this, this isn't so much why bats are such great zoonotic carriers. It's more why their populations aren't destroyed by the viruses that when they hop to us are really detrimental, right? Well, it's kind of both. Yeah, it's um, 
yeah, it's how they're yeah. good carriers, but it's also, you know, why they don't really get sick, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they can carry it and not, mm -hmm. you know, their populations aren't decimated. So, yeah, right. but it also, it also leads to the mutations that many mm -hmm. viruses are having that potentiate that jump to humans. Mm -hmm. yeah. And a good virus doesn't kill its host. It, yes. it keeps it alive. So, so yes. it's, um, it's a perfect incubator for that reason. Since yes. They can fight it. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. And, it, and again, huh. it's, it's probably, I would think like just largely an accident in nature that gets this started in the, in the first place. Anything else yeah. that these viruses are showing up into, they could be killing off a population or a portion of the mm -hmm. population, which also then reduces the virus's uh, ability to treat all of us. It yeah. very much reminds me of uh, Cat's Toxo, because uh, the way that... Because uh, I keep wondering, like, where where to Toxoplasma gondii got into cats? Because it, the, from what we've understood, the one of the mechanisms is they, they lack an enzyme uh, mm. in their gut that allows reproduction to take place. So right. the T. gondii probably started in something non-mammal because all mammals, except for cats, who seem to have had a, an evolutionary oopsie where they've lost for <laughs> every, every other mammal has it and, they, and it doesn't reproduce. And so it finds sometimes their, their parasites are very oppor opportunistic yep. and they happen to get into something that through whatever evolutionary oopsies that have taken place, go, ah, this is a, a great home to continue to do my uh, reproduction or I won't get kicked out. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, researchers are looking into bats. We need to understand the bats, the cats, and all the viruses and what they're doing. And I'm glad that researchers are finding out more about what leads to the viruses that end up affecting us. Justin, what do you bring? What do you want to talk about next? <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, wait. Grouchy Gamers say, do the cat families also have a virus? It's not a virus. It's a parasite, uh, T. gondii. Yeah. But the big cats, uh, from my understanding, make some of the enzyme. It's a lower level than, I think, you know, a lot of other mammals. I know they, they can carry the it because... Because they, everybody they, don't want, they don't want they don't want pregnant zookeepers to clean out uh, yeah. the the hay bales, the kitty the, cages, the, the, the cats. Oh. Yes. So they must so reproduce there's a concern. there as well. Yeah. yeah. So then, how well, far and there's back theories that it reproduces history. in otters too. It kind of there's confusion about it. It's not the the, the jury's out on exactly where it's Otters. happening. I haven't heard about yeah. the otter thing. Yet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what do I got? I have uh, this is climate change. Which could sound like a thermostat setting. Global warming, which could sound like a snug sweater near a campfire on a chilly morning just as the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. My personal preference for calling it climitia never caught on, but would have sounded more appropriate to my ear. Common misnomer is that global temperature will be rising uniformly worldwide. They will not. Warming during summer months in Europe and elsewhere has been increasing faster than the global average. According to researchers at Stockholm University who have published new findings in the journal Geophysical Research Atmospheres, the climate across the European continent has become not just hotter, but also drier, leading to worse heat waves and risk of fire. Even referencing back to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
warming over land areas occurs significantly faster than over oceans. The goal to stay under 1.5 degrees warming has to do with global average ocean temperatures. That's where that main focus has been. On land, measurements reveal that warming in large parts of Europe has already surpassed 2 degrees in the summer months. In southern Europe, feedback loops caused a global uh, caused by global warming are being amplified due to drier soil and decreased evaporation, and there has been less cloud coverage over large parts of Europe as a result of less water vapor in the air. The study also includes a section about the estimated impact of aerosol particles on temperature increase. So warming is uh, mostly a consequence of these long-lived greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. These are things that trap heat. They can collect uh, infrared solar radiation and then shoot it back down at the planet. So they just, they're just uh, like a nice warm blanket, heated blanket. Emissions of shorter-lived aerosol particles, like say soot from a cold power, cold-fired power plant, have uh, decreased greatly over the last 40 years, which is a good thing because that emits a lot of carbon into the atmosphere and is toxic, radioactive. Oh, gosh, you burn coal, you get a lot of radioactive isotopes floating around. But they're pointing out the suit did uh, also do something else because that kind of an aerosol in the atmosphere scatters sunlight back out into space and actually has a mild cooling effect on the local areas. So as dirty greenhouse gas emitting power plants have been replaced, their localized cooling effects have also gone away, which then reveal the true effects of the greenhouse gas increases and heat uh, attributed to them. So there's kind of a double whammy going on as a lot of especially this is uh largely i think southern eastern europe has moved away from these coal power plants uh the accelerated heating on land is being shown above two degrees in the summers already yeah and we've of course seen some of the heat waves in other parts of the world as well that are unprecedented but yeah the the whole blowing past the 1.5 that we've been seeing in the news because the COP27 meeting didn't do anything. 1.5 was also, for the IPCC's reports, was also the rosiest number. It was the low end of the spectrum of where what we were in for to begin with. And it only counts if you're on the open ocean. <laughs> Over land, you're, you're already there. You may have even blown past it already. But the number itself, the 1.5, is the global average. So when you talk about overland, overwater, it's cumulatively averaging all of those, all of those higher numbers and lower numbers, and putting it together. So yes, we are well, globally. Yet locally, there are these regions. Yes, in the summertime, we're blowing past stuff where the ocean is keeping things, um, you know, cooler. But yeah. The, what what this really suggests is it's good we're cleaning things up. Seeing what we're actually doing is like a slap in the face. And 
nobody wants to do anything about it. They just want to shove all the dirty stuff in the closet and shut the door and ignore it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, so the, the problem with that, though, of course, is that the planet is mostly ocean. Yes. So if, if the oceans are at 1.5 and mm-hmm. we know that it's dramatically higher over land. Yeah, it's you know you, over. Yeah. When you get to the average of 1.5, uh, the oceans may be at 1.2, and everything else mm-hmm. is at 3. Like, yeah. It's, it's uh, the ratio there. Uh, mm-hmm. Mostly what they're, what they're tracking. Yes, there's a little bit. It's more global. There's other sources. But it's mostly uh, an ocean temperature thing at 1.5 everything else is going to be well above that (sighs) we are going it's what's happening uh there were some agreements made at cop 27 whether or not you agree with the way that they're going to be putting money away the political decisions um i'm glad these conversations are happening but but yeah it's going to be the solutions are really going to have to be more and it's going to have yeah. to be a different we're going to end up playing catch up in a big way yeah. <laughs> that's very yeah, clear so- is that like that we're borrowing from tomorrow is what's currently happening and all of a sudden everyone's going to go oh no oh no oh no what's happened <laughs> like yeah. try to backtrack and that's going to be way harder than trying to harder. do things now yes yeah. absolutely it's only getting harder and harder so there's already a problem with their whole loss and payment scheme idea yeah it's because they can't uh, agree on whether or not they're going to base those payments on current emitters yeah. of which <laughs> india and china would have to pay a lot of money or yeah. historic emitters in which right. china and india would pay a lot problem. less but, like, well and the, the other problem like, is that so the, certain countries are selling the oil that then other countries are burning so then mm. Who pays for that? And uh-huh. currently, it's looking like the people doing the burning, but there's also the selling of the mm-hmm. oil, which is part of the deal. So it's, you know, the, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> we have yeah. So, solutions. So then nobody's we getting any money. This. And if the we money goes this. to any of these yes. countries, it's not going to, it's going to be so vague. And so it it's not going to go to people who are hurt. It's not going to go to the local farmer who lost his crops because of global warming. It's not going to go to any of these people. It's just not. Hopefully. Stop. Don't pretend. Don't pretend your dollars are going there. Is that in fact going to go into the building of structures that burn fossil fuels? Because yeah, like, or be part the of soccer the stadium. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Hopefully they'll go into the construction of sustainable fuels, solar panels, no. wind farms, nothing you know, hydro to that. generation. Mm-mm. No, there's no mm-hmm. language in any of it that That's indicates any of it would go there. Mm-hmm. Any, well, there's none. You know, I am thankful for science because it tells me things, and you know, it sometimes you can just ignore the people and the politics. So anyway, let's yes. move away from yes. <laughs> the changing climate, climatia, and um, you know this disease we've given our planet, and let's talk about. Birds trying to fly through the air. Yes, I know many yes. people will be boarding an airplane uh, today, tomorrow, yes. Friday. And when they do, you know, one of the things you really don't want is turbulence on your flight. And no. to know if you might have a turbulent flight, 
maybe you should ask the pigeons. This is a study uh, with academics from Swansea University collaborating with University of Leeds, the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior, and the University of Constance. And they looked at flying a small aircraft along and close to a track of pigeons. They wanted to measure the turbulence levels and see if pigeons might have something to tell us beyond the instruments we currently use to measure turbulence. <laughs> can, they so measured, can, can we use b birds bouncing in yes. the air to tell us about yes. the air? Okay. Exactly. So yep. the unsteadiness of the birds, the bump up and down, this can be used to understand how turbulent the conditions are. They uh, they they hooked up some some backpacks essentially to these pigeons, and um, they compared the measurements that they collected: uh, GPS, barometric pressure, and acceleration data. They compared that to that measured by an an anemometer. I always want to say it wrong. Anemometer on board the aircraft. That's how English works. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Anyway, so lots of syllables. Uh, so basically, they, they, they looked at these two things, and they found out that they could indeed use bird-borne sensors to calculate free stream turbulence in nature. This, of course, depends on the pigeons going where you're interested in getting measurements. So there is that kind of interesting caveat of, do you train the pigeons? Do you just measure pigeons everywhere? And for the most part, um, they, they're looking specifically at using this to measure these conditions in areas where it's kind of inaccessible to humans. So they, they likened it to using seals with sensors on to measure salinity and sea temperatures under ice caps. So they could use, they could strap some, some backpacks onto these birds and send them into areas that are remote or difficult to access to collect atmospheric data. What's interesting is that remember, you know, it depends on where the pigeons go. Um, right. is that the pigeons could fly in conditions that were too turbulent for sensors. Uh, for the kind of our our, um, our our sensors that are not strapped to pigeons. <laughs> but there was also some suggestion on how pigeons might have avoided certain routes with very high turbulence. That could be data that you could include. This pigeon went way out of their way to go over here. That means there's a high turbulence area in this space. So that also raises the question of how birds cope with high turbulence and the effect that it has on flight costs. Because if you're going way out of the way to avoid turbulence, then, you know, that that does make your flight longer or more difficult or takes you off course. You have to spend more time and energy navigating any number of things that come as a result of that. But basically the long and short of this is that birds could be used as a remote sensor for wind turbulence <laughs> and that uh, it could allow us to go places where our normal um, devices cannot go and fly in conditions that our normal devices could not fly in. So there you go. I feel like this study was done by a researcher who accidentally crossed over from the parallel dimension where all air travel is done by zeppelin <laughs> right yes <laughs> and, and yes we could outfit we could outfit all the the, the zeppelins with with pigeons who will tell them about current right. turbulence conditions and we can send them out and they will find us the best route 
See, I'm th- I'm picturing more like, ladies and gentlemen, if you look to the right of your aircraft, you will see the Grand Canyon, and if I look at my pigeon friends out in front, they are bobbing up and down, which means we're in for a bit of a bumpy ride here, so just strap in and uh, stay seated. Are <laughs> so they tied to the wing? It. Like, where are these pigeons? <laughs> We're tying no. them to the wing. No, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I do wonder. Why? How high? <laughs> Not that fast. <laughs> yeah, how fast like, I can know. a pigeon fly? How fast can a pigeon fly? How far? How mm-hmm. much turbulence can a yeah. pigeon take? How? Like, what? What determines how a pigeon chooses its route? What is it that the birds see in the air that we can't see? How do yes, they? And this do is they still watch a question. the clouds? What do they know? Right. And this is still a question we're trying to answer because we still don't have a firm grasp on how pigeons navigate the landscape. Yeah. So is this part of that? No idea. Oh, I bet you I know how they do it. I just figured it out. I got it. I got it. We just learned that insects flying uh, emit electrical fields. Uh Uh-huh. If pigeons can see an electrical field, they can say, hey... Uh There's no insects in the air over there. Must be too turbulent. I'll go this way. That's it. That's their, They're navigating by a yeah. smaller winged creature. By bug. Yeah, yeah. got it. And then the or bugs they're... are doing it by uh, bacteria, right? They're, and then... they're, they're listening to the flowers, which are listening oh, to the bacteria. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, right. missed a step there, yeah. Yeah, all right. Oh, there was a talking flower story. We didn't, I didn't it's probably Everybody's... everybody's Following those electric fields, I'm sure the yeah. ions uh, are a sensory field that are very important. But we have to, we'd have to look into that. So next step, pigeons. How do they sense mm-hmm. changes in the ion fields? Yeah. Yes. Well, after that uh, Thanksgiving meal or that Thanksgiving travel that you're doing, flying pigeon air, um, you are going to have a meal, and at some point you'll probably have to go to the bathroom, and there may be some defecation involved. And sometimes, if there's defecation involved, and you look in the toilet, you go, oh, that sank, or oh, look, a floater. And what on earth determines the difference between? Well, Oprah told me it was about calcium. It's not about calcium. <laughs> That's, Oprah had a whole show about it, I think, in the 90s. Yeah, well. Floating poop means calcium. Well, Oprah was not, wrong? Our, our information has come a ways. Oh. And you know, now the microbiome is a big area of research. There was some uh, question not related to calcium, but whether oil levels determined the buoyancy of your fecal matter. Um, but... These researchers who published their paper in Scientific Reports, they're from the Mayo Clinic, they had uh, germ-free mice, they had experimentally microbially colonized mice, and they had naturally gut-colonized mice, and they compared the different buoyancies of the food that passed through. And you want to know what they determined? Those mice that had no bacteria, the germ-free mice, they produced sinkers. So bacteria are partially responsible for what's going on. uh, And what is responsible is the amount of gas that the bacteria are producing. So 
gas-producing bacteria, Bacterioides ovatus, is one species that has been linked to flatulence in humans. Um, There are other forms of bacteria that they specifically worked with. But really, the more gas that your bacteria produce, the more you're going to have a floater. But there's a huge problem with this. Mice don't eat what we eat. Mice do not eat what we we eat, but they do have, you know, they 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 do have bacteria that we have, right? And just, so different bacteria so different from ours, <laughs> but they can have sinkers or floaters apparently. And they took away the bacteria and they sank. It's all about know. gas. This is Blair. really hard for me to buy. I understand. I understand <laughs> in, in terms of mouse sinkers and floaters. I'm on board. Yes. It sounds okay. great. But but applying it to humans or other species. Eat, like yeah. also mostly lab mice eat like pellet food which is homogenous and is always right. exactly the same. And our our diet is extremely varied. And so in if you if you're eating the exact same thing every day, then your sinker or floater might have to do with the amount of bacteria, but I'm just saying there's other things involved in what is in the poop. Right, but what you eat is, it's also a, 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 you know, a two-way highway. What you eat influences what's in your gut. And so when you have, say, more fiber or more beans or other things that lead to more gas production, that's going to lead to different formations of things. I'm just saying, like, multiple things could make, potentially, we don't know, right? But multiple things could make feces sink or float it doesn't just have to be the bacteria right so yes it's based on this experiment we don't know if changing their diet but maintaining a certain like keep seeding them the same bacteria over and over would that change anything we don't know that right we uh, yeah you're right fair point point to blair and (laughs) (laughs) everyone see how your thanksgiving meal goes yeah. And remember, <laughs> if you smell something at the table and it's not the turkey coming from the turkey, it don't blame your relatives. It's their microbes. It's their microbes. It's the dog. That's the that's dog. one of the reasons to have a dog. <laughs> blame the dog. <laughs> now we know, Blair. Okay, just <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about waste. Justin, do you have more waste to uh, waste our audience's time yeah, on? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, this is follows nicely, apparently. Uh, according to environmental engineering researchers at Drexel University, we should be using our sewage wastewater to fertilize crops. The production of nitrogen for fertilizer is an energy-intensive and accounts for nearly 2% of global carbon dioxide emissions. It's higher than I thought it would have been. New study looks at a process for removing ammonia from wastewater and converting it into fertilizer. It suggests that it's technically viable. It would reduce the carbon footprint of fertilizer production, creating a circular nitrogen economy. This is according to Patrick Gurian, a professor in... Drexel U College of Engineering, quoting, 
This means we are using existing nitrogen rather than expending energy and generating greenhouse gas to harvest nitrogen from the atmosphere, which is more, which is a more sustainable practice for agriculture and could become a source of revenue for utilities. Under the Clean Water Act, 1972, in the United States, municipal water treatment facilities have to meet certain standards of quality control for the water that they are discharging back into the waterways. Ammonia is at elevated levels in wastewater and can result in overgrowth in vegetation, which then can kill uh, fish if it's released. So they have a couple of options. One is they create uh, a lot of, it takes a lot of time and they put out in these big fields and sort of let it off gas slowly over time. And other ways that they do it can be rather energy intensive. So one of the options that they, they've been looking at here something called air stripping, which removes ammonia by raising the temperature and pH of the water enough to convert the chemical into a gas, which can then be collected in a concentrated form as ammonium sulfate. Using data from Philadelphia's water treatment facility and several others across North America and Europe, the team conducted a, a life cycle assessment, uh, an economic feasibility assessment. They looked at the factors ranging from the cost of installing and maintaining the air stripping system to the concentration of ammonia and flow rate of the wastewater to the sources of energy used to drive the collection and conversion process to and down, down to the production and transportation cost and market price that the fertilizers, fertilizer chemicals uh, would have that. So pretty, it sounds like they did a pretty nice print analysis, a feasibility analysis of this thing. They said that findings of the feasibility analysis show the air stripping emits Five to ten times less greenhouse gas than current nitrogen producing processes used to make fertilizer. And it uses about 15 times less energy, making the overall cost of producing the fertilizer this way from the, from the wastewater far, far cheaper, a magnitude cheaper than That's it would great. be the old way. Yeah. So this also cuts the time and processing needed to treat the water, which means that the turnaround time of getting that uh, wastewater back into fresh water out back into the environment would be faster, which could be helpful. So the process is uh, wouldn't replace chemical production of nitrogen for fertilizer uh, right. because there's just there's we make so much of that and there's we just don't have enough. It's a huge of need. our own wastewater. Yeah. To, yeah, but it would uh, it would be a reduction and it would be a sustainable reduction. And it's just, it's taken one more thing out of the footprint. Uh, and, and that's what we need. You know, that's, we, there are some big solutions out there that can be looked at, can be addressed, can be discovered, can be scaled up to some degree. But usually once you look at scaling up, like the afforestation thing that's going to take over uh, something uh, 30% larger than the United States of mm. dense trees. Mm -hmm. Right. Or the something like two hundred fifty thousand or million some of those those carbon capture uh, container things that we, they built a while ago. They've been being, being built. I think those might be in Norway. Uh, there's a lot of big scale, but there's a lot of small solutions. And if you string enough of the small solutions together, you get a decent amount of the way there. 
And this I just is the like, kind of thing. Oh, I just say this is the kind of thing that you, if you have an industry that's producing extra uh, ammonium or nitrogen, you know, nitrates and ammoniums that ammonia that you can use that and create another product. And so this is, you know, take a byproduct, turn it into a product as opposed to just letting it into the atmosphere or even take it out of the atmosphere, like you were saying. And, you know, I think that is part of the benefit, especially, you know, reducing the polluting that we do into our atmosphere. But Blair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The I think that's exactly it is thinking about the ammonia that we produce with our bodies as um, a byproduct or something that needs to be processed when before we lived in these buildings with plumbing, that was actually part of the whole nitrogen cycle yep. is you consume food, you release nitrogen back into the soil, and it fertilizes the soil and allows for more food to be grown. And as we've kind of sanitized our lives, we've removed ourselves from that cycle. Right. And so that's that's the problem is we're kind of like, we're we're messing it up on both ends. We're, we're processing out and kind of sequestering the nitrogen that we're naturally producing. And then we're pulling it out of the atmosphere because we're like, mm. we need more nitrogen. <laughs> it's, like, it's actually, it's right. We're supposed to make it and it's supposed yeah. to go back into the ground. So I love the idea of trying to reestablish that connection that is supposed to exist. When you say supposed to exist, though, I mean yeah, agriculture it's, it's is part a of the process. We used to, we used to go, we used to hunt. No, not agri- I'm talking poop, about like you'd, like animals, you'd poop by just a like tree, basic wild and then you'd animals. Go, like okay, we got to keep going. Yeah, we're not camping here tonight. Woo! And so, and so, no, we, but if, we, if we you're did. if you're a deer, if you're a deer, you pee uh, and you poop on the ground. Yeah, and more plants grow. That's kind of the basis of the nitrogen cycle, and that's that's where we, you know, that and dead stuff, right? That's we where were, we're all coming from. Yeah, and we were a part of that as well before we started putting ourselves into an uh, agricultural uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were hunter-gatherers. We were re- wandering around. Maybe we had middens or areas that uh, were latrines that we created when we were in our tribal uh, stages of development. Um but you know that's still part of it. There um, mm-hmm. was yeah, start still part of it. Yeah, but I mean, it was, but the agriculture re- revolution when we stopped going, uh, traveling very far, you know, staying for uh, years or generations in one location. Yeah. Then we started to have to mitigate. You know the, that the waste. that midden wasn't yes. at the edge of the thing was now in the middle of town. Oh, yeah. So. So we've been we've been trying to distance ourselves from this as a problem for yep. for now thousands of years. That yeah, it's just, it took that long to occur to us. Like, oh yeah, maybe there's something uh, useful in the maybe way we that can the give na- back. natural cycle of things up. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let's see. Does anyone gonna have vegetables at their Thanksgiving meal tomorrow? Yeah. Well, Certainly. think about their memories. And how okay. <laughs> you make memories at the Thanksgiving table. How are these plants going to pass on their memories? Anyway, researchers uh-huh. published in Trends in Plant Science this last week on their work uh, figuring out how plants are able to ad- adapt to the adverse effects of climate change, how they're passing down adaptations to offspring, 
And one of the things that really stuck out to me in uh, the the telling of this story is uh, one of the the lead researcher, Federico Martinelli, who's a plant geneticist at the University of Florence, saying that, um, you know, plants don't have brains, they don't have nerves, they don't have a way to store their memories, and they don't have language, they don't have a way to tell stories and pass things down informationally um, in a, you know, the way we think of our storytelling and informational pass down. Um, and he says, one day I thought how the living style and experience of a person can affect his or her gametes, transmitting molecular marks of their life into their children. Immediately, I thought that even more epigenetic marks must be transmitted in plants, being that plants are sessile organisms that are subjected to many more environmental stresses than animals during their lives. So as the seasons change, as cold seasons get shorter, as hotter seasons get longer, as the wet season dries up, how do plants send in information on how to survive down to the next genera generation um, from what they've learned in just the most recent period of time? Not, you know, the stuff that's not necessarily bound up in the DNA. And this researcher then said, well, it's definitely going to be based in epigenetics. These mechanisms allow plants to recognize the occurrence of a previous environmental condition and react more promptly in the presence of the same consequ consequential condition. And so in their work, they highlighted a number of key genes, proteins, oligonucleotides um, that, that are involved in abiotic stresses like drought, salinity, cold, heat, heavy metals, pathogens, etc., and they provide a they they've provided a whole bunch of examples for the molecular mechanisms that are responsible for plant memories and that it's you know plants have to have had another way to transmit information from generation to generation than simply dna or storytelling there's got to be something else there and so um the way they the way they tell this story in this particular paper is that it's the epigenome that is very important to this uh, to this these these memories. It's somatic memory that can be then hmm. translated transgenerationally. Once again, I will say, Lamarck, we're sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're sorry. We're sorry, Lamarck. You were right on that. Yeah, you had some good ideas. Mm -hmm. The giraffe was maybe a little much, but like you, you had the basic idea down. You really did. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I said, I said no to Lamarck so many times when I, I thought I knew so much from my genetics classes in university. I was so wrong. And Justin, actually, you used to be like, oh, in Lamarck, let's talk about Lamarck. And yeah, well, you yeah. know, because it, you were it, on it. it, it just makes it just makes sense. It does. Uh, it just makes so one of the things too is we we've, we've seen we've seen evidence of of plants learning of creating seeding and growth strategies based on a previous generation's access to water. Uh, so so you know we've known this is this exists. We know they have this memory. We know they have right. these amazing abilities. We know they listen. We know they spike their sugar when they hear uh, bees flying by. 
And there's a, there was this the story that I didn't bring. I've lost. I can't find it now. I was thinking about recycling, bringing it in, where they're also changing some iridescent coloring. Uh, flowers uh, can alter iridescent coloring on them to signal mm. bees, and they can That's also cool. regulate that up and down in the presence of bees to sort of advertise, like, got the good sugars over here. Come check out this pond, whatever they're, you know, Come shouting out, out there. Come check out my sugars. I got a sugar. But they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have all sorts of other <laughs> tricks to, to lure in uh, pollinators, which is amazing, so... Lure them in and tell the stories through their epigenome. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. Um, but Blair, did you have mm. one more story there? Oh yes, I have. I have a quick one. Just yeah. while you're uh, around the family table tomorrow, if you are celebrating Thanksgiving, and your parents are just really getting on your nerves, well, just just be happy your mom's not a cichlid fish. Um, <laughs> Why that's is that? because. Researchers at Central Michigan University have found um, that uh, cichlid fish, um, it's not so fun to be their babies. That's because we know from prior research that uh, cichlids brood their young in their mouths for up to two weeks after their eggs are fertilized. And uh, yeah, you guessed it, about 40% of those offspring get eaten. (laughs) Oops. Oops. Who'd have thought? They looked at 80 females that laid eggs. They were all fertilized by males. After fertilization, they observed how the brooding proceeded. As expected, the mothers kept their offspring in their mouths for two weeks. As they did so, the researchers noted that the mothers didn't eat regular food at all. They also found that the mothers behaved in ways that researchers described as stressed. (laughs) The researchers then (laughs) dissected some of the mothers showing different levels of stress and found that higher levels of stress chemicals in those fish who behaved in more stressed out ways. So yes, they were indeed stressed. On average, the mothers ate approximately 40% of their offspring and 93% of those fish ate at least some of their young. So if you were in that lucky 7%, your mom didn't eat any of you. But that's that's a rare thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very (laughs) rare. They also found that those mothers who appeared to be more stressed you guessed it, they tended to eat more of their babies. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Stress um, eating. Oh, my babies. Ah! Yeah. The researchers <laughs> note that eating one of one's offspring might seem like a reduction in reproductive success. Hmm, you think? But it might be offset by health benefits. In addition to nutrients that they get from eating their offspring. Oh, no. Yum, nutrients. <laughs> the mothers also get an antioxidant boost which gives them the energy they need to spawn again in just a few months, which wouldn't need to do if you hadn't eaten your babies. I'm right. just saying. Yeah. So I don't, I don't quite get that reasoning. I really feel like it is a mechanical mistake. That's what it sounds like to me. You, you're holding a bunch of babies in your mouth. You haven't eaten in two weeks. Oops, I swallowed some. That really feels like it to out. me. I'm stressed out and I just... <sighs> Take you know, take a gulp out of the water, and nope, oh, I just swallowed my babies. Oopsie. Yeah, what's you're that? not as careful. You don't, yeah. you don't want to cook tonight. Yeah, I don't really feel like cooking tonight either. Do you want to order out, or should we just eat the baby? Just one of the babies. Just forty percent of the babies. You know, just forty percent. They'll still make the sixty percent left. Plenty, plenty to go around. Doesn't sound like a real thought out option. Yeah, it's so just, what you'd want to know. It just really sounds like an oopsie to me. <laughs> right, so you've got 7% of the population who are moms who are maybe not as stressed out, who for whatever reason their genes are like, 
I'm just coasting through Mm -hmm. life. And so they're not Mm -hmm. stressed and they don't, and they've got enough energy and maybe they're bigger or whatever, but they're fine. And they don't make mistakes because they're super mom. And so anyway, we're not going to talk about them anymore, but Mm -hmm. they're out there adding whatever they're adding to the population, right? And then you've Mm -hmm. got the big mass of people, oh, not people, sorry. People aren't maybe eaters, I I hope. Um, Then you have the majority. Just doing their best. (laughs) The majority of moms who are just trying, right? These these sick kids are like, they're just trying here. And they're maybe a little bit more stressed out, but their genes are also maybe going to be affecting their anxiety levels and their offspring's anxiety levels. And so, you know, the genetic aspects of this are very interesting to consider. And then there is, but just one second that what Blair was saying, she didn't really understand like the downstream genetic effects of being eaten. Well, if you are, you know, the, the Punnett square kind of stuff, if you are half related to your brothers and sisters, that genetic inform, you know, that benefit mm-hmm. that you've given them yeah. is it is a genetic benefit if you are right. helping your mother to have another generation of children. Right. Well, so, and on the whole, if sixty percent okay. make it and they were breeding, they were brooding outside of the mouth, and twenty percent made it because the rest of them got eaten by other fish. Yes, it is still beneficial to then brood them in your mouth where you might oops swallow forty percent. Right? Yeah. So if, if it's you a eat net fewer. Game, yeah. yeah, then it's still worth it. But it's just, it's very, it's just so funny to be like, you don't say the mother fish with the babies, that she ate some? She no. What? What? I mean, every we've talked about this. Everybody swallowed gum at some point. If yeah. you walk in and chewing gum, at some point you've accidentally swallowed it. It happens. Oh, I, I used to, I used to always swallow my gum intentionally. You know. Always. Yeah. <laughs> you could have been that cichlid mom oops well but the, the thing that's interesting about this is this can't also be like they've noticed the stress level differences but you would think that might be a genetic underpinning but it seems like would that be. would have gotten out by that would have been removed by all the 40 percents and 60 percents of of offspring that were removed from the population whereas super mom Not- fish is putting out a full batch of of potentially no I mean there's nobody saying uh, anything about how these babies are organized within the mom's mouth right so is it completely random do these baby eggs have different levels of activity are the less you know because as these little uh, fish larvae in their in their little little bubble egg sacs as they start growing they're moving around just like you know little babies I'm in my little bubble egg and moving around yeah maybe that's how they're surviving And so they move the around more. Maybe they're the moving better swimmers. The... No, it's just they're not. swimming the wrong way. No, I was saying the other direction. The less active fish are possibly the ones who are just kind of sinking to the back of the mouth where the mother's more likely to swallow them. I think they're swimming that way. Like, yeah, I'm getting out of here. Where's this lead? And then they just swim I think it's down 100% a mistake. Who knows? They accidentally swallow some babies. <laughs> totally that stresses them out because they know they swallow. They went, oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> That's how they get their stress, cycle. right? And it is it is completely random. That seven percent that doesn't swallow any babies, no genetic indicator. Just totally random. If you accidentally swallow some no babies, yep. you get stressed out. You show stress hormones. That's my hypothesis. I yeah. I th- I say you know as a biologist, we often want to put you know it's survival benefit right, but sometimes it's just luck of the draw. It's yeah. stochastic chance, right? This yeah. is oopsies. <sighs> I ate my baby. Okay. Oops. 
This is This Week in Science. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Science Fun. If you are enjoying the show right now, head over to twist.org where you can find our annual calendar sales are going on. That's right. Right now, Blair's calendar is up for sale. The 2023 Twist Blair's Animal Corner calendar is available on our Twist website at twist.org. Click on the colorful picture of the Twist 2023 Blair's Animal Corner calendar to be taken to Zazzle.com where you can purchase the wonderful calendar in a printed format. Or just below the uh, the calendar, you will see a link that says purchase the 2023 Twist calendar digital download by now that will send you to an embedded page once you've purchased the digital download calendar so that you can download a CMYK full color, beautiful PDF that you can print out on your own. So head over to twist.org, get yourself a calendar, get your friends a calendar today. We do appreciate you enjoying the show. And now let's come on back and I think it's time for a part of the show that we like to call... Blair's Animal Corner with Blair. She loves our creature, great and small. Biped, milliped, no pet at all. If you want to hear about animals, she's your girl. Except for giant pandas and squirrels. What you got, Blair? <gasps> oh my goodness. I have a story I'm really excited to share with everyone today. Um, I, I'm not sure other people will be as interested, but I, let me just explain. So <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I should put start myself off, down Blair. ahead of time. I know, I, I know. don't think you're going to be is, interested in this, this is but late breaking <laughs> frog anatomy news. And I actually, I teased okay. it last week because I was okay. so excited to talk about it. I was like, I have, I have to talk about it. It, it. it broke just before the show last week. Frogs. How did they swallow? <laughs> this is something that we haven't known. There's a lot of confusion around it. It took until the mid-20th century to figure out how their tongues work. They finally figured it out by observing in high-speed video the tongues so that they figured out they unroll like a party horn. They wrap around their target and in an adhesive hug, we call it, and pull it into their mouths. But what happens after that? Oh, <laughs> really difficult to tell because, first of all, how do said uh, treats get unstuck from the tongue? Also, if you watch a frog swallow, what I was told in uh, all of my time working with animals is that their eyeballs push the food down. Because if you watch a frog or wait, a wait, toad wait, wait. swallow, their eyeballs. So this push. is what I was always told. If you watch, when they swallow, they close mm -hmm. their eyes and their eyes recede into their head. So th this was the conventional wisdom or educated guess on how frog swallowing worked. The eyeballs push it down. <laughs> but nobody knew for sure. So, uh, researchers used x-ray videography. So they placed toads in a clear observation box. They attached metallic 
beads at key points in the mouths of cane toads, Ranella marina, and they fed them a steady stream of crickets while filming them with x-ray videography. The thing about frog mouths is that they're super weird. <laughs> um, they have a complex pulley system of cartilage and muscle. They have these crazy tongues that I was talking about before. And they have um, a hyoid, uh, a cartilaginous plate called a hyoid, which a hyoid arch is something we have in our throats, but it's kind of just suspended in midair amongst a bunch of <laughs> not bones, basically. Right. And so the yeah. hyoid in a lot of senses in our neck is is a vestige from from when we were Reptilian. reptiles and amphibians yeah, yeah. yeah. way back when i mean and we're so still reptiles have, technically right yes <laughs> and so they so they have this big fat hyoid they have a cartilaginous plate um or as their hyoid it has loops and prongs attached to muscles it rests on the floor of their mouths and the function so far has been unknown so you can see where this is going the hyoid it turns out plays a big part in how swallowing works and the eyes have nothing to do with it. The other crazy thing is that a lot of frog species, there's about 7,000 known frog species, which toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads, right? So um, a bunch of frog species have fang-like teeth on the roof of their mouths, and then toads, which generally don't have teeth, have ridges, like a washboard, along the upper palate. So they, so they have this giant hyoid, they have these weird protrusions that are hard in the roof of their mouth, either teeth or, or this washboard made of cartilage. And so what they found was that the whole floor of the mouth was pulled down and backward into the throat and the tongue along with it via the hyoid. They reconstructed the movements into 3D animations. They created a play-by-play -play from still frames to try to figure out exactly what was going on. So the tongue comes out. It reaches its full extent. It grabs its prey. The hyoid then retracts into the throat. The tongue, which is directly attached to the hyoid, slingshots back into the mouth because the hyoid is pulling it down. It's going to whoosh, and pulls the tongue back. So that's the recoil of the tongue. That's where this comes from. They're not sure how far the hyoid could move because instead it kind of slams into the frog's heart. <laughs> What? And so, yeah. So it's. That's um, why the eyes close. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's actually, it seems to be highly coordinated. It slides against the heart milliseconds before the tongue smashes into the cartilaginous cushion of the hyoid. The other piece that's crazy is that until now, no one's known how they unstick the prey from their tongue. Because once the tongue has grabbed it, how do they get it off? It gets pulled off during this process, right? Yeah. It's like ripped so off. It's ripped off, but they think actually by those things on the roof of their mouths, either the mm. teeth or the or the Ridges. plate. Yeah. So uh, the hyoid shoots up and presses the tongue against the roof immediately afterwards. And it moves forward. It scrapes the food off into the esophagus. So this would explain the ridges and fangs on the upper palate. This whole process takes less than two seconds. 
Most of that time is spent repositioning the tongue in hyoid after it's been slingshotted back and forth. And so this challenges everything we've assumed about how frogs and toads eat. But the big asterisk here it's is not that the this was done on cane toads, one okay. species. Right. So now is the time to do a comparative study amongst a bunch of frogs and toads to see whether the feeding behavior of these cane toads is the rule rather than the exception. Is this the mm-hmm. thing we see everywhere or mostly everywhere in frogs and toads? So, you know, kind of, or did they just pick the worst and most unlucky test subject in the world. (laughs) So hopefully it's that first one. It's a really good example species for all of frogs and toads, but it's, it's just so, it's so funny to think about how, how much of zoology has been based on observation, right? And the more tools that we get at our disposal and the more ways we can think about to measure how the form and function of animals work, the more we learn. Because just watching frogs and toads, you go, oh, it's the eyeballs. <laughs> They're pushing the food down. Duh. I, I have never thought it was the eyeballs, Blair. <laughs> I have been told time and time again that it is the eyeballs. So I now heard it in now we know. I heard it at every zoo and aquarium I've ever worked at. It's the eyeballs. But it's now not. we know it's not the eyeball. Mm-hmm. It's the hyoid, which seems like the more likely, actually, if you just, you know, want to think logically about it. It's, it's fine. It's anyway, think about that while you're swallowing your Thanksgiving meal. What's your hyoid it's, up to? It's the hyoid, <laughs> man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the hyoid. Oh, I love it. So hopefully. Everybody found that as interesting as I did. <laughs> Moving I on. The, the last thing that uh, might come up tomorrow that I wanted to talk about in terms of the animal kingdom, you know, animals are just like us, is that you might have um, a family member. And if you don't, it's you who likes to show off. <laughs> <laughs> Say, hey, look at me. Look what I can do. Hey, look at this thing that I got. Hey, check out the new gadget that I bought. I don't know. It's, there's, there's always, we like to You're share right, experiences, me. right? Yeah. yeah, it's me. yeah. So we like to share experiences. We like to share objects. We like to marvel in things together. And for a long time, it has been assumed that these very specific social interactions were previously only for humans. Can you guess? <laughs> And the answer they is... They found an animal that does this. They oh, wait. An can I guess the animal? Yes. Can I guess? Because I mean, I'm guessing from all animals. But humans. I'm going to say... Huh? Yeah. Other than humans. Uh, I, w- I want to say that it's... Uh, that I would... I could see this happening in chimps. I'd be a little confused, but not surprised if it happened in mice, like what they would be showing off. But I also think birds could be because birds might be like, oh, look at this, this interesting tool that I have manufactured and check mm-hmm. out what I can do with it. So now I don't know. But now I need the real answer. It's chimps. Yeah, you, you guessed <laughs> it okay. the first time. Um, but but this is different from saying, look at this tool that I made because that's social learning. This is showing something off just to go, hey, look at that. Like throw it over your shoulder and be done with it. Right. So this was 
here's the big asterisk on this piece. It is one one encounter among two chimps that was observed once. So this is something unusual that was observed that I wanted to just talk about for a second. But this is not a systemic observation amongst chimps in a specific group or amongst the entire species. That needs to be looked at further. However, I feel pretty confident that in chimps and in other animal species, this is something that you will start to see. And we're going to watch the video right now, and I will narrate it for our listeners. So there's one chimp who's uh, kind of mouthing a leaf, and it's just a leaf. It's not food. It's not a tool. It's not anything she can use. And then she just shows it. She like shoves it in front of the face of a second chimp as if to say, like, look at this leaf. And then puts it right back and starts looking at it again on her side. So, again, there's no food on this leaf. There's no function for this leaf. She's just like, hey, check out this cool leaf that I found. And that's it. <laughs> so these chimps... Um, Look at it. Look at it. Yeah. Look at this it. Is a, this is a mother and daughter. So this is the daughter encouraging her mother to just join her in looking at a leaf. And there have been lots of social interactions that chimps have been observed doing where they share experiences with each other. They they use gestures to kind of indicate interest. But this is something very unique in that it is something that has no function. All previously documented referential gestures in primates were given to request something and not just to share attention. So even if it was something that was not, that didn't have a, a function, it's they were trying to use it to get their attention to do something. This is really just, hey, look at this thing. And then they keep hanging out together and that's it. And um, so this is really just an invitation to do further study. But um, yeah, they they examined 80 similar leaf grooming events in order to rule out other explanations, including food sharing and initiating grooming or playing. So they 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 measured this one against all the other ones. It really seemed unique and different. Co-author Professor Slocomb of the University of York added, quote, while there is a need to identify further examples of this behavior in chimpanzees, our observations indicate that sharing attention for sharing's sake is not unique to humans. It has been argued that our ability to share experiences helped us evolve the cognitive abilities to set us apart from other species, such as our capacity for joint action, cooperation, and language. Our observations raise new questions about why humans share experiences more often than our closest living relatives, and whether engaging in this behavior at a higher frequency than other species can still explain the evolution of cognitive functions underpinning human social behavior. So that's her way of kind of saying like, but we still might be special because we do it a lot. Yeah, so, we do it more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's basically what all of social media is, is, hey, right. look at this. It's just share. It's just <laughs> asking for attention. It's often not asking or, or, for specific or, action, right? Yeah, just attention. Yeah, or or mm -hmm. the but my favorite cartoon is is uh, what does it say? The wife is the guy's at the computer, and his wife's like, "Hey, when are you coming to bed?" And he's like, "Somebody on the internet is still wrong." Something like he's still correcting things on the internet. Like, no, that's right. that you said that. Uh, well, but, it was but, like the joke you know, for a very whenever long. Whenever I hear yeah. those things. Whenever I hear those things in terms of this leading to a behavior leading to a cognitive mm -hmm. ability in humans, I'm always like, well, you know, likely all of those cognitive abilities, uh, all those behaviors came about as a result of right. cognitive ability. Like, I, I don't feel like, 
we built small cognitive abilities one by one. Then the brain increased it to, to, you know, have the capacity to continue them. Feel like the you brain got the cognitive ability. bigger, yeah. and then there was kind of yeah, yeah. It feels like it went that direction. So it's as as someone yep. who's spent a lot of time around animals, <laughs> I can tell you that uh, a lot, like almost every animal I've ever seen, really um, ha- can spend attention on something that is visually interesting. And so if they can do that, if they can watch TV or if they can watch humans or if they can um, look at a, a strange object moving in a strange way and just watch passively, then why can't they do this? This just this seems like a version of that, right? Hey, look at this thing. But it's it's the it's the bridge of the social connection of not just I can watch and and engage in an in in a observation of an interesting thing but, but i, I want this other else. individual yeah. to also pay attention to this thing and which requires like a a knowledge of another being in a space and that they have their own attention span and they are looking or not looking at a thing right so it like it, it requires a lot of complex thought it, to understand the relative nature of other individuals but theory of mind mm-hmm. right but it, it doesn't feel impossible yes. to me for primates for birds for other animals yeah, and we know that well, I mean, I mean, we have the so many examples. Young, of... They're the chimpanzee young are just like jumping around and playing yes. and all over their parents yeah. and like getting their parents' attention all the time in all sorts of different physical ways. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is an older child, right? So maybe this is not playing, but still that you know child need for attention and a different right. way to get it. So maybe. You know, this is that kind of next step in mental development of the chimpanzee brain in how that attention is gained. I love that. That totally makes sense. Because that's, yeah, I mean, we do that too, right? When we get older, we don't ask our parents to like, hey, look look what I can do. And we do a handstand. No, we're telling our parents (laughs) about our latest achievement or, (laughs) yeah, yeah, or, or a thing that we made with our own hands or, you know, just stuff that. Um, that is kind of at a different level of shared attention. Absolutely. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. Come to my house and share a meal with me. But it, but sure? it, like, you know, talk about a book with you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I guess I don't know why it would be terribly differentiated from, uh, from, from learning, you know, because we, right. we have many examples across the animal kingdom of the older adult showing, you know, orcas show the young how to hunt and they practice even with the baby seals and stuff like this. We have, it's endless. We have the bird that's saying, okay, I'm ready to learn. And then you're observing the little bird to see, okay, yeah, that looks like they're ready for the singing lesson. Yeah, because they're paying enough attention. You know, it could also be a form of practice or play for a learning event, which is, you know, mom is always showing the young one here, look at this, here, look at this. And then we do a thing. And the, the younger one might be practicing teaching by going, oh, here, look at this. And but that was the rest of the end of the lesson. There's nothing to there's no there's no learning moment there. But they're they're picking up those pieces where you're getting uh, attention of another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And maybe that young chimp will then have a baby and be like, here's a leaf. Oh, yeah, I forgot. This lesson goes nowhere. Oh, here's a. <laughs> Here's a here's a stick. Let's go. Let me get termites out of a hill. That one I know how that one is. So it could just be practice yeah. for a, a a shared learning experience and teaching experience that animals do quite a bit in the animal kingdom. 
Yeah. I I think with two animals, it's very hard to say anything, but it's interesting that uh, the behavioral researchers are just noting it as a behavior now mm-hmm. for the first time, separate from yep. others. So I think that's the interesting, that's going to allow other observations and differentiations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all about recognizing that animals have the capacity for things that we designate as uniquely human. Then you yeah. start to see it everywhere. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's, this opens up the opportunity to observe it. Yeah. Yep. This is This Week in Science. I do hope that you are observing this live-streamed podcast or, you know, asynchronous, asynchronously viewed somewhere, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or potentially you're listening to us on a podcast. We love that you're, you're with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. And don't forget to head over to twist.org to get your 2023 Twist Blair's Animal Corner calendar. All right, Justin, what you got? It's time for Just Good News, the science news segment that hears the strange growling sound coming from the basement of the recent research lab and goes to investigate the source of the sound with nothing but an intermittently operating flashlight and a healthy dose of optimism. It's just good news, Mass Extinction Edition. The Earth Earth is not currently experiencing a sixth major extinction event. It has been believed in most scientific circles that the planet Earth, the one we're living on, it was in the midst of the sixth global mass extinction event. Not so, say researchers from the University of California at Riverside and Virginia Tech. So... Yay, good news! In the study and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the researchers were exploring life forms around 550 million years old. They found that the percentage of organisms that vanished from this time period to the next was similar to other documented extinction events that killed off nearly 80%, uh, or in this case, killed off nearly 80% of the first complex multicellular life forms on the planet. Uh, this this form of life was sort of odd-looking by more complex future life forms. Lots of orby disc-shaped things. Uh, they they only lasted ten million years, so kind of a flash in the pan evolutionarily. And researchers believe environmental changes were to blame for the extinction event. Geological records. Uh, this is quoting uh, Chen Yai Tu of University of California Riverside. He's a paleo ecologist and these studies co-author geological records show that the world's oceans lost a lot of oxygen during that time and the few species that did survive had bodies adapted for lower oxygen environments though it's not clear why oxygen levels declined at the end of that era it is clear that environmental change can destabilize and destroy life on earth at any time point Such changes have driven all mass extinctions, including the one currently occurring, uh uh-oh, in which we are losing thousands of species each year due to climate change. Okay, well, I guess if you're counting, we can no longer be considered to be in the sixth major mass extinction event in Earth's history. Turns out it's it's the seventh. Unlike later events... Thanks, Justin. This earliest one... That was more difficult to document because the creatures that perished were soft-bodied and did not preserve well in the fossil record, 
We humans, on the other hand, will be having an indelible mark for future (laughs) paleoecologists to sift through, be they chimp or mouse or octopus, whoever's running Mm, the show in the next (laughs) sentient the sentient dolphins. Eh, I'd go orca then, if we're going to go marine. That's a type of dolphin. It is. I guess, well, well, okay. Fair enough. I know you said that on porpoise. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And uh, actually, you know what? I tell you what, maybe this study's the good news study. We'll make this one the good news study, because that one got to it bad. What is this one? That tricked me. I don't believe you. So this has been published in the scientific journal Global Change Biology. It's a study from the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources and the National Institute of Aquatic Resources, Technical University, Denmark, DTU. They found that large numbers of whales have been moving into the waters off eastern Greenland. So whales have found a new home. The once subarctic ecosystem off southeast Greenland, once dominated by large amounts of drifting ice pack, has become more temperate. With less sea ice and warmer ocean temperatures, these changes in summer ocean conditions are making the region more attractive for large numbers of fin and humpback whales, as well as other species like tuna. That all sounds great. Dramatic ecological changes such as these are considered regime shifts in the ecological literature. Shifts from one regime to another occur at a tipping point. And Sometimes uh, reverse, sometimes are not reversible. And the regime shift then can have cascading effects throughout the ecosystem if it is not reversed. This is quoting Professor uh, Professor Miles Peter Heve Jorgensen, Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. In this case, the new regime will likely become permanent for the foreseeable future unless temperatures cool and the ice export from the north increases again. Continued 21st century climate change makes this scenario unlikely. This event, uh, this is then Brian McKenzie, National Institute of Quad Resources at DTU. This event is so unusual in the past 200 years of summer ice observations in the region, we have seen big changes in some of the upper trophic levels. There are likely many other changes in the ecosystem and food web that have not yet been described and might be part of the reason why highly migratory species are coming to the region. So sort of like the frog guy swallowing situation. They're making observations. They're seeing ice. They're seeing uh, the migratory mammals uh, showing up. But of course, very difficult to really observe the underlying food web uh, that's taking place below to see how dramatic these these changes actually are and how how, how far if, if, how far past the tipping point. Though this has apparently been going on for a while. Back in 2012, bluefin tuna were being caught as bycatch in trawl fisheries in the waters off off east uh, East Greenland, which was something that had never been encountered before and got a lot of attention back then. Since then, large numbers of fin and humpback whales have been showing up. They started to occur together with temperate species like dolphins, killer whales, pilot whales. At the same time, observations of high Arctic species, narwhal, walrus, started to Decreasing. dwindle. Yeah. Decreasing. So they're getting pushed out. Uh, 
either by either by the water temperatures or by the other species that are moving it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, all these animals are are also governed by the things they eat, right? Which is what they were getting to talking about the trophic level. The food so, web. right, right. So, so yeah. the the animals that are leaving are likely leaving because their food source has left. It could it could be their food source has left. It could be the other the, the other ones are migrating because their food source moved in down mm-hmm. below, right? Yeah, Absolutely. but you think something like mackerel, which is more of a feeder fish, would be uh, indicative. So the levels there are dwindling, and then you see some of the you know the predators that would have been eating the mackerel, or predators that would have been eating tuna. But, yeah, there are probably many different situations we can consider. Who's the predator? Mm-hmm. Who's the prey? And what are we seeing happen? Yeah, they say this uh, the ecological shift in East Greenland has been also driven by the decline in summer ice drift. So we know Greenland's melting, so you think, oh, there should be more ice drifting around, right? There should be more of that that stuff going on. So it turns out, which this is something I didn't know, I just learned from this study, that most of this ice drift that you see off of eastern Greenland, and I've seen it before, I've, I've the route that uh, flies the planes fly over Greenland to get to Denmark. They they go right over eastern Greenland. And there is this amazing area where it just seems like an endless expanse of drifting ice coming off the, the Iceland shelf. Right. Or the, the Greenlandic shelf. But it's not from Greenland, which I had always thought. That ice all forms uh, north of Alaska and then slowly churns out uh, over Greenland and then gets like sort of accelerated out to sea yeah. from there. So uh, apparently it's not as endless as I thought because it's been in decline. And that is why uh, partly why maybe the, there's the warmer temperature or the, the more room for air breathing mammals to get in there and, and utilize uh, uh, utilize that water. So the good yeah. news of this, it's like a new normal. Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, yeah, new uh, <laughs> new place for whales to hang out. For yeah. a lot, most a lot of whales, okay. except for the narwhal. Go, and the if you yeah, walrus. if you want to go whale watching, <clears throat> yeah, go to go Greenland. to Greenland. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, just good. You news. gotta find the silver lining in all of the you know. Do you? <laughs> just good news. I, mean, I like to find the silver linings somewhere in there. <laughs> All right, I have a couple of stories before we close out the show. Number one, um, if you enjoy putting on makeup on a daily basis or on an occasional basis, and you're just not excited about the foundation, the concealer, all the stuff that you think you need to make your skin even and flawless, and look, I have no pores. Anyway, that's not going to happen. But new research just published in Vision Research Journal uh, has studied whether or not just applying makeup to the eyes, lips, eyes and lips impacts how people see your skin. And they did digital makeup application in pictures, uh, comparing pictures with 
even skin using concealer foundation, no thing, no makeup at all, or just makeup applied to the eyes and the lips. And they also did a uh, real professionally applied makeup, you know, to real people, not just digital makeup, um, comparison. And they determined that people see your skin as more flawless when makeup is only applied to the eyes and the lips. Yes. <laughs> so if you just want to do the mascara and the lipstick, maybe, you yeah. know, a little bit of eyeshadow or something, it's going to draw the attention of people's visual field um, away from the specifics of the rest of your face and potentially uh, give the impression that your skin is more flawless than it actually is without having to conceal anything. So I'm going to pretend that I knew this result all along <laughs> yeah. because I am too lazy to put on concealer. And so I think I have put on concealer less than a dozen times in my entire life. So <laughs> I'm going to pretend it's I knew it. I knew, knew it. it. And I just paid attention to the eyes and the lips. That's it. Don't worry about the rest. I love this. Save so yep. much money and time. So much a, time. As yes. somebody who has never uh, really worn makeup but uh, has observed that concealer stuff or whatever, you know, those bases, the there's cover. Those can go very easily wrong. They become extremely noticeable if they're caked on or applied unevenly or whatever. So I just, just, yeah, just avoid it. Just skip that. Just go with this. Yes. Eyes and lips. Yes. There you go. We think we need, we think we need all the makeup, but yeah. you know, you, you don't. You know. All those contouring videos on TikTok. Who needs them? Who needs it. them? Um, you know, it, it, it does this research does really kind of get at some of the uh, of previous research that suggests that when people are looking at faces, our visual system, our brain, and the way that we recognize faces is actually more of a holistic um, uh, view and that we are looking at things that are important for communication. So mm -hmm. the eyes and the mouth are very important for communicating messages and very important for behavioral communication and so that's why this seems like it makes a lot of sense right you don't why pay attention to those little tiny details that observers brains are not necessarily paying attention to anyway the eyes and the lips have it everyone that's great that's what our brains like yes so you know thanksgiving tomorrow if you feel like you need to put on that makeup don't it's your family. Just it's eyes fine. and lips. That's just all. Which lips. the lips you don't even have to bother because you're going to eat. Gonna so eat. the lips are going to wear right off. So just the eyes and even forget about that. Just, yeah, just go have a good time, everybody, and forget about all the makeup just come at all. as you are, you know? No, although although I, I hate to perpetuate any sort of uh, women or anybody should wear makeup kind of a stereotype. Because I, I, I've never really cared for it. Uh but I had this uh, this dear friend that I worked with, and she had very faint eyelashes. She's blonde, but she had very faint eyelashes. And if she didn't wear mascara, she would. She's like, "Oh, I didn't wear mascara today, Justin." I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's fine." She's like, "Yes," but now everybody's asking if I'm sick. Oh yeah. She would, See, she this has, is the like, thing that happens if you regularly wear makeup and you don't yeah. wear it one day. Everyone will ask you if you are sick or tired. They do. So nobody can pick up why. 
But like, are you tired? Did you sleep last night? Are you coming down with something? She's like, oh, I gotta go do the makeup. What you do is you just never wear it. And then if you occasionally wear it, then everyone's like, oh my God, you were gorgeous. But like otherwise just like normal every day. Otherwise, this is the problem (laughs) that I ran into uh, was in my last job. I wore a lot more makeup than used to. And I would, if I would ever tone it down, it was, oh, are you sick? Do you need to go home? (laughs) No, no, I'm fine. I'm sorry. I didn't Tammy Fayette. Come on. All right. So on my final story, I do want to have us think about the birds and think about what the birds eat mm-hmm. before we eat them. But I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about turkeys. We are going to discuss the great bustard male. Oh, the great <gasps> bustard this boy. That's a big <laughs> right? Yeah, go. these are these are a, a, a lecking species, very grouse-like. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a big front patch of feathers, and they puff up their chests to impress the females. And they have big tail feathers that they fluff up when they're trying to impress the ladies. And they really do want to be as healthy as they can be. Uh, some researchers were looking into uh, whether or not birds these birds in in specific choose their diet as a way to accentuate their health and so their study in frontiers in ecology and evolution it suggests that they seek out plants with compounds that can actually kill pathogens so they determined that during the uh, the the mating season these great bustards, according to co-author Dr. Azucena Gonzalez-Coloma from the Institute of Agricultural Sciences in Madrid, the great bustards seek out two species of weeds that are also used by humans in traditional medicine. We show yeah. that both contain antiprotozoal and nematicidal worm-killing compounds, while the second also contains antifungal agents. They compared these birds in uh, the Iberian Peninsula to uh, see what they were eating during different times of the year. And they found that during the spring season, the uh, droppings that they collected, they didn't watch them. They just looked, observed the poop of the birds. No need. <laughs> poop tells the story. It tells the story. 623 droppings from female and male bustards during uh, the mating season in April. And uh, they looked at tissue that was left over from stems and leaves and flowers from about 90 different plant species that grow in the area. And they showed that two species, the Papaver roeus and the Echium plantaginium. Uh, these are the corn poppy and the purple vipers bug gloss that are eaten more than expected from their relative abundance compared to uh, the amount of plants locally in the environment and how much is actually in the diet. So that's what these males are out yeah. doing. They're like, let me get some of that bug gloss and be So healthy. they're showing up to the lek. They got their... Um... Their shake, uh, shake kind of cup with the with the wire ball in it that they shake up, right? That has the um, the creatine in it and the vitamin C boost and all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm juicing. I'm ready. I'm ready for you. That's right. 
I don't have any nematodes. That's right. No protozoans on me. That's right. I'm yoked. I'm ready to go. Yeah. The researchers, the authors tested the uh, activity of the molecular fractions that they had obtained from these plants that they had looked at. They found that the uh, molecules, the alkaloids, uh, essential oils, others, um, actually were very successful against Trichomonas gallinae, which is a protozoa, uh, nematode, a parasitic worm, and that's Meloidogyne javanica, and the fungus, Aspergillus niger. So, uh, this is interesting because it suggests that not only humans are capable of seeking out food for their medicinal properties, that birds do it, we do it. That's right. Um, Everybody's trying to stay healthy, and it's fascinating. I mean, we've talked we've talked also about like catnip and other uh, other plants yeah. that our our animals enjoy uh, potentially having these kinds of medicinal uses. And so it's just interesting. The male birds who need to show off and be healthy. Look at what I'm eating. Right. The question is, where does this this behavior come from? Right. So, like when we. We get cravings sometimes because we are deficient in something, but this doesn't really feel like that. It feels like they're trying to boost something. So it, 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 if they're getting a craving, it's not because they're deficient. It's because yeah, their so hormones guess, are telling them or... Yeah, so I mean, maybe I that, is, that is the question. Um, were these birds infected with... Right. protozoans or nematodes coming into the season and then the plants helped them or uh and is that what led to them eating these foods more or or when they get a spike in testosterone do they just mm -hmm. crave these foods and where does right. that come from is that something in their genetics i don't know it's so bizarre yeah. is it something yeah, I mean, that's learned that's a lot of animal food preference I have to assume is genetic. You know, how much of it is learned? How much of it is genetic? How much mm -hmm. of it is microbiome driven? Because then, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if you're learning a little bit from your parents, then maybe that microbiome gets uh, situated early and then that takes right. over. But it could be, it could just be, you know, this was a long time ago food preference. For yeah. some segment of a bird population, uh, and then then come the nematodes and the what have you. Here comes the the, and then now the, all those birds that didn't eat these plants are gone. And so what you're left, but it's with only is during one there. time of the year, right? It's right. only during. But is that also season. when the plants are there, or is it could also plants be year round? Like the poppy but, isn't year round. But it was relative. There, there's all sorts of other plants huh. around. But they just happened yeah, to be yeah. eating them more. And the males were eating them more than the females. Anyway. Right. What is your turkey eating before you eat your turkey? Probably corn, right? Is that? Probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably. If you're uh, eating the meats, some people are having ham. Some people are having turkey. Some people are having tofu. Doesn't matter what you eat just matters that you are able to share time and a little bit of gratitude for all the things that we've got and the people who are in our lives at this very moment and the science that has brought us all together. 
I think we've made it to the end of another show, and I just want to say thank you all so much. I'm grateful. So grateful. All right. Who do I need to say thank you to? I want to say thank you. Justin Blair, thank you for being yes. co-hosts. really love thank getting you. to do the show with you every week. Really love it. Yes. Thank you, Fada, for yeah. all your help. Thank on... you for uh, also showing up. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I tried. Okay. Um, Fada, thank you so much for your help on social media and getting those show notes done. Really appreciate that. Gord, Arnlor, others who help keep the chat rooms, very happy places to be. Thank you for your time and your effort. Um, Identity 4, thank you for recording the show. Rachel, thank you for editing the show. People who are watching and are in our chat rooms, on our Twitch, or Facebook, our uh, YouTube channel, thank you for being here while we're doing the show live and for talking and for being a part of what we're talking about. Really love having you here. And as always, I would love to say thank you to our patrons. Thank you to... Teresa Smith, James Schaefer, Richard Badge, Kent Northcote, Rick Loveman, Pierre Velazard, Ralphie Figueroa, John Ratnaswamy, Carl Kornfeld, Karen Tazi, Woody MS, Chris Wozniak, Dave Bunn, Vigard Shefstad, Hal Snyder, Donathan Styles, a.k.a. Don Stylo, John Lee, Ali Coffin, Gaurav Sharma, Reagan, Derek Schmidt, Don Mundus, Stephen Alboran, Daryl Myshak, Stu Pollock, Andrew Swanson, Fredis 104, Sky Luke, Paul Ronovich, Kevin Reardon, Noodles, Jack, Brian Carrington, David e. Youngblood, Matt Bass, Vote Beto for Texas, I guess, next time. John McKee, Greg Riley, Mark Hessenflow, Steve Leesman, a.k.a. Zima, Ken Hayes, Christopher Rappin, Deanna Pearson, Richard, Brendan Minish, Johnny Gridley, Remy Day, Flying Out, Christopher Dreyer, Greg Briggs, John Atwood, Rudy Garcia, Dave Wilkinson, Rodney Lewis, Paul, Rick Ramos, Philip Shane, Kurt Larson, Sue Doster, Jason Olds, Dave Neighbor, Eric Knapp, E.O., Adam Mishkan, Kevin Parachan, Aaron Luthen, Steve DeBell, Bob Calder, Marjorie, Paul Disney, David Simmerly, Patrick Picararo, Tony Steele, and Jason Roberts. Thank you so much for all of your support on Patreon. And if you are interested in supporting us on Patreon, you can head over to twist.org and click on the Patreon link. We also have our calendars for sale for 2023 at twist.org as well. On next week's show. We will be back 8 p.m. Pacific time. 5 a.m. the next day, Central European time, broadcasting live from our YouTube and Facebook channels and from twist.org slash live. Hey, do you want to listen to us as a podcast? Perhaps while you bake a pie from scratch? Host a podcast while I baked a pie today. Just search for This Week in Science or podcasts are found. If you enjoyed the show, get your friends to subscribe as well. For information on anything you've heard here today, show notes and links to stories will be available on our website, www.twist.org, as well as the ability to sign up for a newsletter. You can also contact us directly, email kiki at kirsten at thisweekinscience.com, justin at twistminion at gmail.com, or me, Blair, at blairbaz at twist.org. And I will put a special tease in there that you can email me at blairbaz at twist.org if you have a particular item that you want to buy from Zazzle with a particular piece of art on it for the holidays. There's still time. There's a bunch of promo codes right now in Zazzle. So just email me and I will make it and post it in our store. If you do email any of us, just be sure to put twist, T-W-I-S, in the subject line or your email. It'll be uh, grabbed by a toad tongue and pulled down towards the heart of that toad 
via their hyoid and then they're going to swallow it, not using their eyes. And uh, well, I'm never going to read it. So just put twist in the subject line. Thank you. <laughs> and until uh, we uh, we can figure out what a mastodon uh, is and how to, I got to go to Twitter to figure out how to get on mastodon. Basically, I think uh, we are still on the Twitter for now. Where we are at Twist Science, at Dr. Kiki, at Jackson Fly, and at Blair's Menagerie. We love your feedback. If there's a topic you would like us to cover or address, a suggestion for an interview, a haiku that comes to you in the night, please remember. Or please we'll let us be back know. here next. <laughs> Threw me for a loop. Uh, we will be back <laughs> next week, and we hope you'll join us again for more great science news. And if you've learned anything from the show, please remember. It's all in your head. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science, it's the end of the world. So I'm setting up shop, got my banner unfurled. It says the scientist is in, I'm gonna sell my advice. Show them how to stop the robots with a simple device. I'll reverse global warming with a wave of my hand. And all it'll cost you is a couple of grand. This week science is coming your way. So everybody listen to what I say I use the scientific method for all that it's worth And I'll broadcast my opinion all over the earth Cause it's this week in science This week in science This week in science Science, 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 science. This week in science 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 this week in science, this 